Good to be with everyone. My name is Pastor Joseph Bianco. I want to welcome you to City Reformed Presbyterian Church. We're glad you're with us. City Reformed was a church plant 19 years ago um, to uh, bring the gospel to Oakland and the surrounding areas. This is our evening service. We also have a morning service at Winchester Thurston. And we have a time after the sermon to uh, ask me whatever questions you would like. It'll be in the corner office. Um, but let me pray, and then I'll read God's word. We're on page 7 of your bulletin. Let me pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come humbly uh, before your word, uh, starting this new sermon series in the book of Acts. And Father, in each and every uh, book of the Bible, you have something new for us and for individuals. And uh, Lord, thank you that we can reflect on the beginning of the church, uh, which we continue today. Uh, and we'll continue. Um, and I pray, Father, that you would give us uh, attention uh, to receive it as your word and to allow it to affect change in our lives and our hearts. We pray in your name. Amen. So we are in Acts 1, 1 to 11, starting in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Well, do you ever feel overwhelmed? Uh, I think we can all feel overwhelmed at times. And the, for the apostles in the book of Acts, the ascension of Jesus is a powerful moment. Not only the ascension, but this promise that Jesus will send his spirit and that authority will be given to the apostles to start a church that will affect the whole world. That's a lot. So I remember when I was a little boy, um, my parents signed me up for t-ball. And it's hard to stay on task when you're a little boy playing t-ball. And in fact, it's probably one of the worst sports uh, if you're attention deficient. Um, so they had me out in right field. And if you know right field, you know that only left-handed batters get out to right field. Um, and how many left-handed batters are there? Maybe one in every 18? Maybe none. So I'm there out in right field and I'm getting bored. 
And amongst other sports I was working on, I was working on gymnastics. And I thought this would be a great time to practice my gymnastics. So I started doing cartwheels out in right field. Well, my coach uh, is yelling at me to stay on task. And my uncle is there laughing hysterically from the bleachers. Friends, in our text today, Jesus has fulfilled his earthly mission. Uh, He stayed on task. And now by his spirit, Jesus reigns bodily at the right hand of God the Father, still on task. By that same, the power of that same spirit, Jesus calls us to a task. And it can feel overwhelming. Uh, It can feel scary, can't it? To spread the gospel to the world. But we don't do it alone. We have the power of the spirit. The spirit empowers believers to stay on task or on mission And that's our call today, to stay on mission. How are we to do this? Uh, Three points. We have certainty, we have the spirit, and we have the person of Jesus. So the book of Acts is traditionally called the Acts of the Apostles because it is a book outlining what the apostles would do through the work of God's spirit. Uh, You see in verse 2, it says, He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Now, without getting too deep, uh, we'll define apostles as those who Jesus gave authority to build um, his church. Uh, There were the original 12 apostles, uh, and then Matthias replaces Judas. Um, No one here, for example, would be an apostle. We would be disciples of uh, Jesus if we're followers of Jesus. Acts was written in A.D. 63, and that dating comes from the fact that the book has this abrupt ending. Most scholars see that abrupt ending uh, where Paul is in house arrest uh, in Rome as indicative of the date. Um, Acts is an exciting book. It's replete with adventure, arrests, imprisonments, beatings, riots, narrow escapes, a resurrection from the dead, shipwrecks, trial scene, and rescue. Acts is about the coming of the Holy Spirit, the spread of Christianity, and the establishing of Christianity as a new and distinct religion apart from Judaism. But perhaps most important is to see Acts as a two-volume work. Uh, Let me read just the first first, uh, few verses from the first volume. It's in Luke's Gospel. So he says, Inasmuch as I have, this is Luke 1, Inasmuch as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account to you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things which you have been taught. So you can see the similarities uh, in the beginning of the book of Acts and the book of Luke. Uh, Both are written to Theophilus, which is a name that means friend of God or loved by God. So Theophilus may be a person or maybe those who would befriend God. Also in the first volume, we have a purpose statement. It says that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. So Luke and Acts are written that this reader may have certainty. Now, what is certainty? Is certainty different than faith? 
Um, well, they are different uh, in Greek. The Greek words are different for one, um, and they have a different intention. So, for example, the gospel according to John has a purpose statement too. John twenty thirty one. These things are written that you may believe, and by believing have faith in his name. That word belief is the same as the, the word faith in Greek. But here, certainty comes from the Greek word to know. Luke wants you to know the facts. Luke is much more concerned about facts, eyewitnesses, days that Jesus was around and appeared to many people, the food he ate, the people he spoke with. Luke calls these truths in verse 3. It's like you might write a proof for a math equation. These are historical, real-life facts. So why is it important to Luke that you know that Jesus is historically reliable? Well, let me explain it this way. Uh, certainty that Jesus is a historical person is a requirement to believe in Jesus, but it is not all you need. For example, the demons believe that Jesus is real, and they shudder, but they don't have faith in him. Bart Ehrman is a pretty famous uh, philosopher, theologian, who graduated from Wheaton College. I'm really curious. Raise your hand if you know Bart Ehrman. There's five of you, good. Um, so he had a born-again experience, professed Christ, and he is currently um, what he calls an agnostic atheist. Uh, you can look up Ehrman if you like. He actually has a YouTube channel, but I encourage you to do it with caution. Um, Ehrman has turned his whole life and career into books about deconversion or why Christianity is false. But it comes down to this for Ehrman. Uh, Christianity just became an idea to him, and he lost the person of Jesus. Ehrman became convinced through his study at Princeton Seminary that the Bible is no longer trustworthy. He had at one time some kind of relationship with Jesus, but the bottom fell out because he doubted the historicity of Scripture. That being said, uh, obviously many scholars disagree with Ehrman, the Bible is one of the most historically accurate books that we have. There are many reasons to trust the historical accuracy of Scripture. But the point is this, that if you lose the fact that Jesus was a real person in history, who was really raised from the dead, who appeared to 500 people, who slept and ate and drank for 40 days between the resurrection and Pentecost, if you lose that, then Jesus as an idea will not sustain you. Not when tragedy strikes. It is not enough to say that the ideas of Scripture are what is important. To have faith in a God you don't really believe is there. In fact, it's ludicrous. And ultimately, it is why Ehrman is an atheist today. Because he realized he couldn't hold these things together. Luke wants you to have certainty, as well as faith. He wants you to know Jesus is really reigning bodily right now, fully alive at the right hand of God the Father. So the second thing that Luke wants you to know is about the Spirit. So we have the Spirit. This is our second point. Uh, in verses uh, 4 and 5, Jesus tells them to stay in Jerusalem and that they would receive the baptism of the Spirit. Now, baptism is a Greek word uh, that is used both as a formal ritual, um, but it's also a word that's used for washing or cleansing. 
the picture is pretty clear. Uh, just as John baptized, bringing a person under the water, dirty and rising clean, so Jesus would ascend to the Father and the Spirit would descend upon the apostles, which we read about in Acts chapter 2. So the apostles thought, understandably, that he, the arrival of the Spirit would be a big event, uh, meaning that this would be the moment that God would save Israel. So you, you see the problem. The apostles are actually thinking too small. So Jesus responds, this is not the big event. This is not the day that the world is saved and the judgment happens. And it's not for you to know the time or the seasons fixed by the Father. And we talked about the times and the seasons a lot in the morning service. But to put it succinctly, don't try and guess when the end of the world will happen. But what does Jesus do? He gives them a mission. And that mission is that these apostles would carry the gospel from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Judea is obviously the land of Israel. Samaria is the Gentile land. And then the end of the earth is which we are still doing today. Chris Wright in his book, The Mission of God or Missio Dei, paints this picture like this. Uh, Israel, before the time of Jesus, was really at the center of the world. All nations would come and they would travel through Israel and they would see and hear about and experience the one true God. But after Jesus, now those believers of Jesus, those disciples or apostles, would take the gospel to the rest of the world. So the time of Jesus and before the nations come in, and after Jesus, the apostles take the gospel out to the nations. It is a, ti a titanic turning point in history. It's the spark that ignites what we have today as Christianity. And it's a mission that we are still part of today. So maybe uh, you're not directly involved here in missions work. Uh, but if you're part of this church, then you are involved in missions work. Our missions committee uh, works to support our missionaries, many of whom came directly out of this church. Uh, for those who didn't know the Eisningers, for example, they were members here for years, a young couple, uh, and they recently left to a far-off country with their three babies to spread the gospel. They're a remarkable family. Part of our work here is supporting missionaries around the world, but of course, uh, we can do missions in our own backyard, can't we? And many of our neighbors, our coworkers, our gym partners, even our friends don't know Jesus. Your own family may be a mission field that God has given to you. So in that sense, we're always on mission, always ready to share the gospel and the hope that is in us. In this way, we're witnesses. We testify to the work of Jesus in our lives. Verse 8 in Luke says, you will be my witnesses. So how are we witnesses today? Friends, all Jesus asks you to do is one thing. To be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. 1 Peter 3.15. Notice we are witnesses. It's great if you can explain theology or understand some of these uh, answers that are the hard questions of the faith. But primarily being a witness is simply saying, I have seen Jesus in my life and in my heart. And I can tell you why he's good. So I'll be honest with you. In all my years of studying scripture, 
I just have more questions each time I have an answer. My hope isn't primarily in how much I know. Though that's part of it. Remember, Luke wants us to have certainty. But the other part is my testimony. Is that there is nothing more beautiful to me in my life than the gospel. There's nothing more of a compelling story that God has shown me of all people than grace. That I deserve punishment and receive grace. That I was found guilty and pardoned. That although I deserve to be rejected, I was loved and accepted. So I testify that that is my story. I'm a witness of God's love in my life. Now, maybe this makes you afraid. Maybe you feel overwhelmed by the enormity of what Jesus is doing here. And I'm sure the apostles felt overwhelmed. They didn't even understand really what was going on. And if you feel worried or overwhelmed, here's my encouragement to you. It is all the Spirit. It is all the work of the Spirit. All you need to witness is God's Spirit in you. Let the Spirit work. Allow the Spirit to use you. If you're afraid, it is, or it could be because you're trusting too much on yourself and not relying on God's Spirit. Addicts know this well. One of the things we talk about in New Hope is that an addict has no self-control. They can't white-knuckle sobriety. Sobriety is found in giving up control to God, not trying to grasp it themselves. So while the task of missions is enormous and we're small, we have a great God. And through the Spirit is how missions will happen. So we have certainty, we have the Spirit, and lastly, we have the person of Jesus. Our last section in verses 9 to 11 ends with the ascension of Jesus. He's lifted up in a cloud and disappears from the sight of the apostles. There are two angels standing there reminding them of the promise that Jesus will come again in the same way that they watched him go. There's an ancient creed that Christians have recited for thousands of years. It's summarized like this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. The creed is central to our faith, and it's found here in Acts 1. So why is the ascension so important? Why does it matter that Jesus is reigning bodily at the right hand of God the Father? And I'll give you some biblical reasons and some personal reasons. Biblically, it is important that we understand that Jesus is actively reigning. You could live in a kingdom your whole life, and you may never see the king, but you know that things are going to be okay because the king is on the throne. So again, life can feel overwhelming. You know, we personally, my family and I, we had a hard week. Um, I've asked you to be praying for us. Um, I've had a return of my autoimmune disease, ulcerative colitis. Um, my two girls, uh, four and nine months, have hand, foot, and mouth, um, replete with fevers, and my nine months may have pink eye. Uh, so it is an overwhelming week for us. <laughs> I've heard people say that when tragedy happens, something like, they'll say something like, God had nothing to do with that. You know, this horrible thing happens, and they say, God has nothing to do with that. But theologically, I'd argue that that person's actually a miserable comforter. To say God has nothing to do with the suffering that we're experiencing, or that I'm experiencing, is to say that he is either disinterested 
or impotent, that he's ignoring me or he's weak. I'd much rather know that my suffering is still under control of the sovereign king. I'd much rather know that my savior is in control, that the things that feel so overwhelming to me are not overwhelming to him. That doesn't make my struggle any physically easier, but it does give me solace and peace and acceptance with the path I have to walk. So that's theologically, but let me speak personally. There's something about Jesus having a body actually up there in heaven that I find tremendously comforting. God become man is unique to Christianity in that we are the only religion where God comes near. And I mean really near. It would not be it would not be wrong to say Jesus had to ascend that he would enter your heart. And on the one hand, the Spirit is a great comfort to us. But on the other, if we're honest, don't we long to see Jesus, to touch him, to hear his voice? And Christianity is the only re- religion where that has happened and it will happen again. The apostles saw Jesus. They heard his voice. They knew his mannerisms. Imagine for a second that there were not three persons of the Trinity, but two. The Father and Spirit. What's hard for us about the Father and the Spirit? They don't have bodies. It can be hard to relate. We can become overwhelmed with the enormity of God, his omnipotence, his omniscience. It can feel intimidating. In the Old Testament, whenever God would appear, people would cower because they were afraid. And the Spirit is wonderful, but it can feel ethereal or ghostly. In fact, it's commonly called the Holy Ghost. But when the person of Jesus comes, people are attracted to him. When he hugged or kissed a friend, they felt that touch. They felt the warmth of the embrace. They felt the pressure of his arms. When Jesus invited them to a meal, they felt welcomed by a person. And likewise, when Jesus suffered for our sins, they saw a person suffer and cry and bleed. So I have to admit to you that in some ways, um, my childhood faith is in a sense stronger than my current faith. And perhaps it's because I have the faith of a child. It was very simple, it was uninformed, it was unstudied. I mean, certainly my faith is deeper now. But I'll, let me tell you a story. When I was little and I came to believe in Jesus, I fell in love with Jesus. He was at the same time my father, my brother, and my friend. He was with me everywhere I went. When I would cry at bed at night, because something bad happened during the day, he would be there to comfort me. And when I was in middle school, on a youth retreat, I realized that the suffering he experienced was for me. And it was like I could see him bearing the weight of my sin and everyone else's sin on his back. But I didn't see God ethereal. I saw Jesus, a person suffering for my sin. The writer of Hebrews says it this way. He says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
the one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The person of Jesus is so important because God becomes personal. That's why all these Christians are asking you if you have a personal relationship with Jesus. This is what we're referring to. That Jesus ascended bodily. And just as the apostles clung to him when he returns, when we see him again, we will embrace the person of Jesus. The person of Jesus will welcome us back. Friends, if the overwhelming nature of church or missions or even the tasks of life have you feeling fearful or intimidated, be assured that Jesus reigns bodily. He's in control, overseeing all things, and at the same time, sympathizes with you. He is flesh and blood, like you and me, and he knows what we are going through. It is one thing for God to know about your problems. It is another thing for God to condescend in person and take on our problems. I think there is something very right about my childhood faith. Because all I knew at that time was the love of Jesus. So I'll close with this. The book of Acts is really an evangelical book. Meaning it's a book that is expecting you to engage with it. In Acts, you'll hear many times the proclamation of the gospel. You'll hear over and over again sermons and stories about the saving work of Jesus. And the challenge is, how will you respond? Will you respond to the call of evangelism? Will you exercise trust as you step out in faith into mission? Will you exercise reliance on God's spirit, even if it all feels overwhelming? And the book of Acts is especially for non-Christians. When you hear the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves, will you respond to it with faith and repentance? Will you turn from your sin and to Jesus? This is the call for you and for me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for the work of your Son on our behalf. Lord, you know uh, every hair on your head. You know each and every thing that each and every person here is going through in their lives. You're intimately connected with it. And you know it personally. Father, we look forward to the day where we can hug your Son. Where we can be embraced by him. Father, until that day, may we have certainty of the things that have happened. That although they were many years ago, Father, your church continues today. You continue to grow your church. Father, when we are feeling overwhelmed or anxious, encourage our hearts by the power of your spirit. Give us courage. Help us to be brave. Not because of ourselves, but because of Christ in us. We pray in your name.